Welcome to the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast, where we talk with the leading minds in cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing, many of whom will be part of the CanMed 2021 conference in Pasadena, California, April 12th through 14th. I am your host, Ben Amaralt, and yes, you heard that correctly. If you didn't listen to our last episode, or you haven't signed up for email alerts, or you don't follow us on social media, then you may not have heard that CanMed 2020 has been postponed to April 2021. Our team made the difficult decision to push the event back, given the fact that California, like most of the U.S., is still battling the COVID-19 pandemic. After speaking with the Pasadena Convention Center, local government officials, as well as the CanMed team, we felt that moving the event to April 2021 would be the best way for us to provide a safe environment for everyone. If you already purchased your ticket to the 2020 event and you have a conflict with the new dates, you are entitled to a 100% refund. Go to canmedevents.com COVID-19 for more information. The good news is the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast will continue with new episodes every other Wednesday. We look forward to continuing the CanMed conversation through this medium as well as on our social media accounts and on our website. We will be announcing our safety keynote presenter as well as new speakers and panel discussions throughout this year and into 2021. So please sign up for email alerts if you haven't already and please do follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Just search for CanMed Events. On this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Cindy Orser, Chief Scientific Officer at Clip Labs. Dr. Orser has more than 25 years of experience innovating technologies related to cannabis, human diagnostics, and even detecting biothreat agents. We spent most of the conversation talking about the panel Cindy will moderate at CanMed 2021 titled, The Hidden Costs of Cannabis, Environmental Impact. In that panel, she and her fellow panelists will explore how current cannabis cultivation practices contribute to air pollution, water pollution, and increased energy consumption, and also how the federal ban on cannabis is actually worsening those problems. We also talked about terpenes because Dr. Orser co-authored a really interesting article titled Making Sense of Cannabis Strains Through Chemometrics in Review. Cindy is a big proponent of terpene testing and the way that it can help consumers better understand the differences between cannabis cultivars. She also cautions that without terpene testing, consumers are blind to vape products that may add large, unnatural amounts of terpenes to the products. To date, there hasn't been any research into what, if any, health risks come with inhaling those compounds in such large concentrations. Before I get to my conversation with Cindy, I would like to thank our episode sponsor, Terpenes and Testing Magazine. Terpenes and Testing Magazine is the scientific backdrop against which in-depth understanding of cannabis news, compliance and regulation, chemistry, analytical testing, and horticulture science can fully unfold and crystallize. Go to terpenesandtesting.com to read their free blog content and subscribe to their bi-monthly publication. And finally, this episode of CanMed Coffee Talk is fueled by the Hemp and Coffee Exchange. 
Hemp coffee is a healthy, delicious, natural product rich in trace minerals and nutrients, providing sustained energy without the crash of regular coffee. For more information, check out hempcoffeeexchange.com and use the promo code DRINKHEMP to get 10% off your purchase. Okay, without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Cindy Orser from Clip Labs. Good afternoon, Cindy. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, hi, Ben. Thanks uh, for having me on. Absolutely. And I want to thank you again for being part of CAMED 2020 and serving on our advisory board. Um, I know that's a tremendous help to our team when it comes to evaluating the abstract submissions and potential speakers. So on behalf of everyone in the CAMED team, I want to thank you for that, first and foremost. Yeah, of course. Um, and I'm, pleasure. I'm really excited to talk with you today because I know that you're leading a very interesting panel at this year's event that's all about the environmental impacts of cannabis cultivation. So I was hoping you could tell us a bit about what we can expect from that discussion. Yeah, sure. No, I'm happy to do that. Um, you know, when the CanMed organizers asked me for some ideas for panels, you know, what I thought would be interesting. I mean, this is something that's been on my mind for a while um, because I think there just has not been much of, of any attention placed on, you know, what is the true cost of growing cannabis? Uh, you know, in, in this case, we're taking it from an environmental perspective. But I think uh, because cannabis has been under federal prohibition for all this while, it's really hindered any research into what the impact of what is now a multi-billion dollar industry in the United States uh, on what is still a Schedule One drug at the federal level. Uh, so there's been very limited studies that have documented the environmental impact from cultivation of cannabis. Uh, and production, and there are some emerging human environmental impacts that we need to address, we need to categorize them, and we have to use them to inform uh, policies going forward. Of course, if we had federal legalization, I think it would solve almost all of these problems, um, and we would be able to come up with a cohesive way of addressing it. There would be uh, federal grant money made av available to study these impacts, um, and it's just way overdue. You know, whether we're looking at uh, air pollution, uh, land use to inform uh, land use policies, energy consumption, and uh, water water usage and uh, water pollution. Um, those are just you know the, the big ones. There are other ones that. We also don't talk about, which is just all the waste, the packaging waste, uh, the spent cannabis waste that's going unused, uh, the exposure of cannabis workers in the workplace, and of course, you know, the unknown long-term health impacts from chronic administration of high-potency cannabis. I mean, there's a myriad of topics, but we decided to focus it on the environmental impact. 
so it, it, I think it'll be very uh, timely to address some of these issues and get some input uh, from some of the people who are studying this now. Right, and it sounds like a lot of this research is sort of in its early stages. Is that fair to say? Yes, it definitely is. Um, you know, it's really been uh, emanating from a handful of academicians who've taken it up uh, because of their interests uh, and and state-based inquiries like several states are now looking at sustainability and they've formed working groups on sustainability um, so there has been some effort put out there to look at these enormous uh, energy and water costs uh, that go into the indoor grow environment and of course it takes us right back to that federal prohibition and the state spending for themselves and coming up with these incredibly complex regulatory requirements for growing cannabis uh, that has forced the industry indoors. And so there's these intensive energy um, operations that are kind of out of sight, right? So it's, again, one of those things that if you don't see it, if you're not involved in the industry, and you're not aware of it, you might smell uh, the effluent when you drive by some of these big grows and then you immediately know, oh yeah, there's some big grows here. But you don't even think about that those volatile organic compounds are actually um, interacting with emissions from automobiles and forming destructive compounds uh, contributing to, to ozone. Um, so it's good to start to get a handle on what are the levels of these VOCs. There was a study done in Colorado that showed that uh, cannabis indoor grows have probably doubled the volatile organic emissions there. And, you know, cities along the front range of Colorado already um, are dealing with um, air pollution issues. So I, that's just one example. Of course, you move into California, the larger issue is water and water theft um, and disastrous downstream water consequences, um, killing aquatic life and um, stealing water that would normally be going to either communities or to other agricultural operations. And, and of course, energy's a big one. I've heard some crazy figures, and I don't even know how accurate it is, but that um, energy consumption from indoor grows is equivalent to about 4% of all the energy that's consumed in the U.S. So it's very significant. You go into the northwest part of the country where energy is produced from hydroelectric power. So there you have the intersection of both energy production and water use. And, you know, how should water be used and energy uh, consumption be used and how do we regulate it and it's just all so chaotic and it would be ever so nice if we could have a cohesive national uh, policy of, on these issues. 
Yeah, that issue and, and many others in this space, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But right. I'm curious, so how many or how much of this sort of environmental impact is due to the fact that a lot of these grows are indoors? Yeah, well, I think that is largely uh, the source of the problem, right? I mean, what I keep trying to think of any other agricultural cash crop that's this large, right? The cannabis industry is multi-billion dollar that is being grown indoor under intensive energy requirements. Um, I just don't think there's any kind of comparison. And of course, the reason it's indoors is because states and localities, when the industry was standing up, Nobody wanted to see it. You couldn't grow it outdoors. It's not allowed to be grown outdoors. And you have to have these elaborate security systems. And it should be grown outdoors. I mean, it's nuts. And, and you know, combined with the fact that we have these artifact, artificial geographic boundaries that, oh, you can't move cannabis across the state line. So that requires every cannabis complicit state to have this very intensive agriculture going on. You know, for example, I mean, Las Vegas, why is Las Vegas growing marijuana indoors? I mean, it's so hot there. And you know, Lake Mead is at its lowest level of all times. And there's no other crop that has to be grown locally because of lack of federal regulation. Right. Right. We don't. Like in Vegas, they don't grow their own strawberries and grapes and pears and almonds, but they have to grow their own cannabis. So it just doesn't even make sense. Um, and I think part of it is because we don't see it. Most people don't see it because it's in these large warehouses. So you don't realize how absurd it all is. And the fact that these plants should be growing outdoors, you know, like we see hemp growing finally now. Of course, Northern California is unique because I think there's something like 14,000 uh, trespass grows on federal, state, and private land up there. Wow. Uh, and California has this uh, riparian law that if your um, agricultural um, plot um, it comes in contact with a waterway that you have a right to use some of that water. So that's a very unique situation to California that has um, led to this massive depletion and erosion of waterways in Northern California. And then, and then because a lot of them are black market grows, they use massive amounts of pesticides and rodenticides because they want to kill the small rodents. And then all of those chemicals leach into the streams and kill the fish and end up, you know, downstream in somebody's drinking water source. So if there's a domino effect here, um, it's just time to address it, I think. Absolutely. And it's, it's interesting you talk about um, the difference between cannabis and hemp regulations where hemp is, is pretty much allowed to be grown outdoors. 
Uh, I recently spoke with Seth Crawford, who's going to be our cultivation keynote at CanMed. Um, and he said one of the main reasons that he and his brother founded Oregon CBD and kind of went into hemp is because of the regulations were more sort of relaxed and they could grow at a much larger scale outdoors and sort of do the breeding activities that they were really interested in doing. And that um, yes. he also highlighted that it's, it's sort of madness that so much of the cannabis is grown indoors and locally, yeah, as, as it, you pointed it, out. Yeah, it, it is mad, madness. So doesn't make sense. Yeah. And so one of my questions I was going to ask was, you know, how is the impacts of cannabis cultivation on the environment sort of different or similar than other crops? And I think you already answered that is that, you know, no other major crop is really grown indoors, correct? No, I mean, I, I am hard pressed to come up with anything. I mean, in the U S we used to grow, um, you know, some ornamental plants and flowers in greenhouses. Um, I mean, growing in greenhouses would be a step forward <laughs> from right. how it's grown now with um, all the HVAC requirements in these hot climates. And, you know, the water consumption, that was the other analogy. I remember there's some commercial for California almonds and one almond takes 26 gallons of water. Well, I was figuring out how much water one cannabis plant would take and it uses about six gallons a day. So even if it's a short season of a hundred days, that's 600 gallons of water for wow. uh one cannabis plant that would make, I don't know, two to five pounds of, of flour, I suppose. So um, water's a big deal. And I think water is, is uh, going to be a, a prime topic of discussion going forward. Uh, um, there's more and more of the arable land around the world is going to become, you know, on cultivatable because of the lack of water. So I think we need to be smarter and we certainly could be smarter if we had some cooperation at the federal level. And that's interesting too, because I, I imagine that water consumption must be different in an indoor versus outdoor environment, just because indoor you might be growing hydroponically or in cocoa or some other medium instead of planting directly into the soil. is. Is that true? Is that fair to say? That's true. You know, that, that is. And there are some innovation trends out there. So uh, for those cultivators who are just starting out and can build their facility in a smart way, there's this cogen technology that's been around for a while that combines heat with power. Um, it was used originally to grow tomatoes next to power plants. So you don't um, lose um, electricity over transmission lines. It's all right there together. And so I've seen some interesting uh, cultivation facilities that have been set up from the beginning that way. You can also have, take a closed loop approach where you are recovering the water and you have elaborate um, 
uh, water um, reprocessing. So you're collecting all of that water or the humidity that's being transpired off the plants and you kind of have a closed loop. But if you're already in a large indoor grow, being able to retrofit that into a more innovative um, design is prohibitively expensive. And, and, you know, not to totally knock the cultivation industry because they have come up with innovation. Of course, the biggest one was uh, switching over to LED lights from fluorescent lights. Um, they cost more again to install, but they last 10 times as long. They don't emit heat. You can spectrally tune them. They last 10 times longer. Um, so, and you, most large grows now have computer controlled uh, cooling. So it's not just like an on off switch. It's only used when it's, when it's required. Um, and then you can take the entire green approach if you're growing outdoors with a closed loop where you chop the remaining plant biomass and you put it back into the soil or you use it to compost and you can have a much healthier um, approach to agriculture. But again, that takes a lot more, lot more time and uh, input. So your profits go down and, and in these states where there hasn't been any limit on the number of licenses that have been issued for cultivation, I mean, the, the, um, competition is fierce and then on top of that you have these horrendous reoccurring annual fees and the taxes and you know it's hard to compete with the black market especially in California, Oregon, Hawaii, even in California. I mean the black market is still large so I see that as wrapped up into this entire problem of what is the real cost of growing cannabis. It's also, you have to take that into account. Yeah. And as you pointed out earlier, the black market is certainly not um, immune to some of these environmental impacts, even though they may be growing outdoors, no. they might, ha they have a whole, whole nother set of issues. Yes. Yeah. So, yes. so you sort of touched on this a little bit, but I don't know, I, and uh, forgive me if I'm putting you on the spot, but if you were to start a new cultivation um, operation, what would sort of be the, the ideal setup in terms of, you know, limiting the environmental impact? Um, well, I, you know, if you could grow in a greenhouse, if, Whatever state you were in, if it was allowed to grow in greenhouses, I mean, that, that would be the way to go. So at least you're taking advantage of sunlight. <laughs> so you, you don't have to have uh, grow lights or minimal grow lights. Um, you can uh, take advantage of the natural ventilation system that greenhouses offer. And if you could uh, have some type of uh, uh, water stream recovery so you're recycling your water I've always thought you know there's these grows dump so many nutrients into their growing operations and usually it just goes into the sewage I mean there's like no reclamation and most uh, 
sewage treatment plants, water treatment plants don't have a way to uh, reclaim those nutrients. So that leads to the common problem of algal blooms uh, downstream of agricultural runoff. I mean, this is something, this is a sin that's not limited to the cannabis industry. I mean, mm. it's been a problem with agriculture for a long time is capturing runoff. Um, and these high levels of nutrients that the plants just aren't able to consume because of over-application. So that's something else that people, growers, are getting smarter about is actually monitoring the amount of nutrients that plants are using so that you're not over-fertilizing. Right. Yeah, and I think one of the other things you touched on, too, is that part of the problem is that you know, cannabis cultivation has become hyper-localized just because of the federal prohibition. And I have to imagine that once that, once that goes away, then, you know, some enterprising cultivator is going to find the perfect environment to grow cannabis in this country and then just kind of dominate the, the scene. And, um, yes. Yeah. So then we'll, we'll have big ag moving in. We'll still right. have some of the boutique, we'll have some boutique greenhouse farmers probably that curate uh, specific strains that their clients want or have unique attributes. Of course, we'll also continue to have breeding efforts that um, will maximize some of the lesser well-known secondary metabolites that this plant makes. But yeah, in, by, in large part, it will move into big mechanized ag. As we've seen, I mean, it's already happening in the hemp world pretty quickly. Um, so yeah, I think that will be the evolution. Of yeah. The crop. Yeah. And then hopefully those small boutique grows will really kind of um, be committed to sustainable um, type of agricultural processes. So hopefully that will yes. kind of limit yeah. this, but this is a good segue. You're yeah. talking, you're talking about, um, uh, these smaller growers and kind of maybe growing up the more uh, lesser known cannabinoids and things. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk with you about um, was an article that I had read on cannabis science and technology, which was titled making sense of cannabis strains through chemometrics in review. Right. Um, uh, something yeah. that you had authored with uh, Philippe Henry, who's another, another yeah. friend of medicinal genomics. Um, yeah. So I w wondered if you could, uh, we could talk a bit about that and maybe a good place to start is to kind of explain kind of what is chemometrics and how can that be kind of applied to helping people make sense of the various numbers of strains out there? Yeah, so I, you know, I, I have to say that one of the reasons I got involved in cannabis uh, testing uh, was to bring transparency to the end user because it was so obvious to me that um, the strain naming was just ridiculous. And, and uh, even Indica and Sativa basically had no defensible scientific meaning anymore. And uh, strain names had nothing, was, was nothing more than branding. And um, so I set out to demonstrate that. Um, this is when I uh, was running DigiPath Labs in Las Vegas, and we had 
taken in enough samples at the beginning that we had 400 different named strains. And I saw the chemical profile data. So chemometrics is just looking at the chemical profiles for plants, and that's based on whatever analyte groups you're looking at. And I had the good fortune of um, Nevada, including terpenes as well as cannabinoids um, for chemical profiling. And I certainly believe that the cannabinoid profile combined with the terpene profile makes up the, the chemometric, the fingerprint of that strain. So we showed that if we just looked at cannabinoid profiles, 97% of all those strains from uh, the Vegas area were identical, meaning they were all drug type one. They were all high THC because for whatever misinformed reason, uh, con consumers of cannabis value uh, cannabis products based on how high the THC content is. Um, and very few growers uh, at that time in Vegas and even today were growing CBD dominant strains. So they were all high THC. And then we did the same analysis on the terpene profile for, across 19 terpenes and showed that they clustered into three different groups. And then working with medicinal genomics, we genotyped about um, 90 of those strains. And Philippe uh, was able to identify 14 SNPs uh, through that data that we could also use to assign a terpene cluster for any given strain that we uh, um, had uh, selected. So it, it clearly uh, showed that uh, terpenes were more informative if you wanted to bring some order to all of these uh, strain names. And uh, subsequent groups have done that. Uh, you know, uh, Ethan Rousseau and Mark Lewis have done that, and there are other people who have suggested very similar things about the value of. Uh, clustering based on terpenes. And of course, terpenes are the sensory perception you have uh, when you smell cannabis. I mean, cannabinoids have no odor, so you're perceiving that uh, strain through the combination of volatile organics, which are largely the terpenes um, that that particular strain produces. Right. And yeah. what's more is we, we now know that terpenes are physiologically active. So that's why I'm a firm believer that uh, you have to know what the terpenes are because it's actually the terpenes that impart the subtlety that uh, users uh, perceive between strains. Right. Um, so I was wondering if you could give... Uh, maybe a little bit of a primer for maybe the uninitiated. This, our podcast, uh, we, have, we like to think we have a, a wide range of, of folks who are at various levels in their cannabis journey. So um, I think you did a, a pretty good job of laying out uh, the difference between cannabinoids and terpenes, but maybe 
maybe right. a, uh, explain like I'm five sort of uh, explanation would be in order here before we get too deep. Um, well, so from a chemical structural standpoint, I mean, cannabinoids are terpenes. So terpenes hmm. are just a group of chemicals that have uh, isoprene, a five carbon structure as their building block, and they can get linked together so they can be uh, monoterpenes, diterpenes, sesquiterpenes, so they can get bigger and bigger. Um, they're, they're both made and, in, and collect in the trichomes. So, um, you, the, you know, the plant is making the terpenes as a, either to attract certain uh, pollinators or repel certain insects. So, you know, plants don't move around. So they make these volatile organic compounds as a way to communicate uh, with their environment and the organisms, insects and predators or, or attractants that are, are in their environment. So it's actually really interesting. And um, because you can uh, just uh, smell terpenes and you can then measure them in your bloodstream. So you're bringing them into your body through receptors in your olfactory. And uh, because they travel throughout your body, we now know that those same receptors exist in other organs of your body, mm. which gives evidence that they actually perform a physiological function. And we know that more than anything from animal studies and the particular receptors that they bind to are a part of the glutamate, uh, NMDA. They're all uh, sedative by and large in the human body. So they're binding to these neurotransmitter systems so I like to see it, you know, very simplistically that the endocannabinoid system is the big overarching uh, regulator of uh, neuroexcitatory pathways in your body, the dopamine response. And then underneath that, you have the terpenes that are binding to these other secondary, but extremely prevalent neuroexcitatory uh, pathways. So they, you know, there's some people like the entourage effect uh, term and some people don't, but clearly uh, these groups of chemicals are working synergistically. And, uh, you know, it's, I think it's well proven that the more you purify any one of the cannabinoids and remove it from these other secondary metabolites that the plant makes, the less of a beneficial effect you have because you've like you know taken it out of its um, chemical environment that it more normally operates in well i think you're right and after doing canmed for for five years now i think we've seen plenty of evidence to support the idea of the entourage effect but unfortunate right. unfortunately for the consumer they're not really they're not often kind of privy to that information either because um, the state doesn't require them to test for terpenes or it's only a few, a few of the major ones. Um, 
So I can imagine that's that's a huge problem for um, for folks when they're really trying to figure out the the product that's going to work for them. Yeah, no, it's it it it's there's a huge gap. Um, there needs to be a informed educational component, and you know I tried to do that through the dispensary uh, owners in Vegas, but again everybody falls back to, well, what's the percent THC? Right. That's, for whatever reason, that's just the mindset. And it's it's like how we got into this crazy mindset that that fat is bad and that you should have a low-fat diet or that salt is bad and you shouldn't have salt. And it's just ridiculous because we need to consume fats and actually – moving toward low-fat diets has probably led to some of the uh, mental health issues we have because it's highly important to take in fats and certain types of fats. It's important to have salt. Um, Now they've restricted salt so much in some retirement uh, facilities that they're now giving the the, um, people who live their salt tablets because you need salt for your enzymes to function. So, you know, these extreme viewpoints that somehow get out there and are promoted are just, are just erroneous and it just takes too much time to undo them. Right. And so is there any way that a consumer kind of absent having a good laboratory result saying that the terpene concentrations can sort of, at least make an educated guess. So can they just follow their nose? Is that a reliable way to do it? Well, so yeah, actually that's what we've all been left to do is to figure this out on our own. And particularly if you're, if you're not overly curious and uh, researching things online, I mean, at least now there are sources of information online. You can go on to Leafly and, if you have been buying, say, Gorilla Glue and you like that strain, you can go and look it up and you can see what are those terpenes. And then you can um, find other products that have those terpenes. But, you know, the first step is to educate people that uh, terpenes are contributing to the physiological outcome of consuming that particular strain or product. And, you know, now we see, and now that a lot of the producers have kind of jumped onto the terpene bandwagon, for good or bad, um, they're adding terpenes back into products. Right, right. And um, just like THC, too much of a good thing is not, is not better. <laughs> and... Um, so we we had seen extremely high levels of terpenes in certain vape cartridges, and you know it's it's just it's not right uh, um, to to just indiscriminately be adding them. And this comes back to another big problem within the industry is that there's there's no requirement to list the additives that are going into um, these extracts. Uh, and I think that should definitely be a requirement, uh, particularly if you're in a state where terpene uh, 
analysis isn't required, then the testing lab would never even see that. Hmm. Um, and, you know, we kind of got into that issue when some of the black market was uh, adding vitamin E acetate. Uh, the, I mean, a lot of harm can be done because there's a big difference if you're ingesting a terpene or rubbing a terpene on your body versus inhaling it into your lungs. So we, we desperately need uh, some oversight uh, as to what is going into these uh, high concentration vape cartridges. Yeah, that's an interesting point because if I understand correctly, the, the terpene levels are usually quite low, right? Like fractions of a percent. So I would um, yeah, but they're yeah they're usually in flower, you know, two to four percent. Oh, okay. Yeah. But I can yeah. imagine that you know if you're if you're adding them to a vape cartridge, they could be much higher than that. And then to your right, point, sort of what what's what's the effect of that, or you know, right? Because issues that come with that because these concentrates are so pure and so sticky and they need to be diluted. And so now all of a sudden it turns out chirpenes are a very effective diluent to dilute the product because like the like dissolves like and uh, terpenes are a good um, dilution uh, component for concentrated cannabinoids. But uh, you know, I, I think anything above 5% is not a good idea. We had seen um, terpene concentrations as high as 26, 25%. Wow. Uh, it's way too high. But we don't know because, oh, nobody's ever done a study about, oh, you know, is it a good idea to uh, vaporize and inhale terpenes at that level? Yeah, probably not. Hmm. Sounds like a good topic for a CAMED presentation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, all right, Cindy, I want to be um, want to be respectful of your time. I know we're kind of coming up on the end here, so uh, before okay. I let you go, I wanted to kind of give you an opportunity to um, uh, plug yourself, your uh, social media website, anything that people need to be aware of in order to follow up with you. Yeah, so I am uh, the uh, Chief Science Officer at CLIP Labs. We're a new lab in San Diego, and CLIP stands for Cannabis Laboratory Innovation Project. So hold my feet to the fire. I hope to mm -hmm. introduce some innovations, and uh, we hope to be expanding across the U.S. We have a fantastic uh, group of scientists here and um, we just, our goal is to continue to bring transparency to the cannabis consumer and enlighten them um, of issues that they should know about. That's excellent. That sounds like a great product, uh, project, I should say. <laughs> yeah. Great. All right. All right, Cindy. Well, thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you out there yes. in Pasadena this, uh, this September. Okay, thanks, Ben. Have a good day. You too. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Cindy Orser. Check out the links in the show description to learn more about the topics we discussed 
and please also check out the Clip Labs website. Our next episode will drop August 19th. In the meantime, please go to canmedevents.com slash coffee talk and sign up for email updates. That will enter you into a drawing to win two tickets to our CanMed 2021 VIP dinner and keep you up to date with all things CanMed 2021. If social media is your thing, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Just search for CanMed Events. And lastly, if you are listening via a podcast app, go ahead and hit the subscribe button so that new episodes download automatically to your device. And if you'd like to leave us a five-star review, we'd appreciate that as well. All right, that's it from us. Stay safe, stay healthy, and be sure to come back next time for Canvet Coffee Talk.